Good morning. Today's text of emphasis is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 20. So please follow along as I read um, from the New International Version. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is the word of the Lord. Can I say I'm really impressed that I actually got through that? Because I've been studying this passage for a month and this morning at first service and right now are the first time that I've been able to get through that without messing up. Now, if while I was reading that passage, if you felt incredibly confused, please don't feel bad. You're in very good company because I understand exactly how you feel. Because seriously, is that not the most confusing set of sentences you've ever heard string together? This is the part that really trips me up. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer me or my... You see, I can't even get through it, right? This has got to be the biblical version of what, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. It's completely confusing and convoluted, and yet here it is right in the middle of the most important books of the New Testament, Romans, Paul's magnum opus. The great reformer Martin Luther said about the book of Romans, it is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. In fact, Luther credited his spiritual revival to in large part having studied and understood the book of Romans, and he wrote, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise this whole scripture, this, the whole scripture took on new meaning for me. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. So Romans is an important book. So I can't understand for the life of me why it would contain right at the heart of it in chapter 7 of 16 such a convoluted passage that's hard enough to say, even read, let alone understand. How in the world did Paul get to the point of saying things like, for I, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I want to do, I hate? How is it possible to understand this passage if I can't even read it right? And part of me wants to ask, like, why is Paul talking this way? Is this dude okay? I don't know what you do when you don't understand things, but I always find that it helps to go back to the beginning. So maybe if we understand the context in which this passage was written, we can begin to understand its meaning. So bear with me, won't you, while we briefly recap what we studied about the book of Romans so far, so that we can fully understand the context surrounding this very confusing text. Romans, as you know, is a letter to a group of Christians, believers in Rome, and Paul, as he does with all of his other letters, starts it off with a greeting. But that only lasts about 18 chapters, and then Paul gets straight to business and he tells it like it is. 
Now, please understand that in the interest of time, I'm going to summarize the book of Romans in my own words, um, and Paul says it in a much more dignified way. But if you were to ask me to summarize Romans chapters 1 to 3, in my own words, I would say something like this. Y'all need Jesus, for real. Because there's not one person among us who is righteous. There's no one here that is outside of the control of sin. We all need a savior. But Paul says that's why the gospel is the good news, because even though we have sin and even though we deserve God's judgment, Jesus presented himself as the atoning sacrifice. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul drops this bombshell, and he makes one of the most boldest claims of all Christianity, and this claim is central to the rest of the letter. So I'll let Paul say it in his own words and read from Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we maintain that man or woman is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Wow. You have to understand how bold that statement is, particularly coming from someone like Paul. Because before his conversion, Paul spent his whole life studying the Hebrew scriptures and upholding the law. In fact, you may remember from maybe a previous sermon or from your own study of the book of Acts, the very first mention of Paul in the Bible is at the stoning of the Christian martyr Stephen. This is obviously back before he had a personal encounter with Jesus and before his name was changed from Saul to Paul, he was a man of the law. And because he was a man of the law, he stood by and he watched as the spiritual leaders of his time laid their cloaks at his feet so they can go and stone to death this young man for breaking their religious law. And the Bible says that as Stephen died, he kneeled, fell to his knees, and he cried out to God. And the Bible says Paul was there, and he approved of Stephen's death. So this claim that Paul is making, that we are justified through faith apart from the law, is absolutely shocking. And it's as, it's as, if, he, uh, it's as if he understands that we as the readers were shocked and he begins to start anticipating our questions and answering them before we're able to ask them. So Paul says, does this mean that justification by faith, does this mean that the law is nullified? And Paul says, no, of course not. We're actually to uphold the law, but you see there's this thing called grace that Christ has given us, and he's given it to us freely. In fact, the more sin there is, the more grace he's willing to give. Shocking, especially coming from Paul. And again, he anticipates our shock and our questions, and he knows that the next logical question here is, wait a minute, does that mean that I should go on sinning more so that I can get more forgiveness and more grace? And again, Paul answers, and he says, of course not. But you see, Paul says, we are dead to sin, and we are alive in Christ, and we don't need to sin anymore because we are free from the bondage of sin that held us captive through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That's beautiful, but this is where Paul loses me. Because while these words are amazing and I really, really want to believe them, I've never really seen it play out, at least not in my life. Because it sure feels like I'm held captive by sin. Because what I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, that is what I do. It's starting to make sense now. Actually, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his famous paraphrase, The Message, and this really helped clear things up for me, and maybe it might be helpful for you too. He says, what I don't understand about myself is I decide one way, but I act another, doing the things I absolutely despise. I still sin, 
and maybe you do too, and Paul does. And I think Paul realizes that he's painted himself into this corner because, because for all of these pronouncements, there's one thing that Paul didn't account for, and it's humans. Humans have a tendency to make things messy. We always find a way of taking something that's good and then messing it up, don't we? Just look at the earth that we're living in. This earth that God formed, and when he formed it, he looked at it and he said, this, this is good. But in the last 25 years, did you know this? We've lost 10% of the wilderness of this planet. And because of that loss, there's an increase in devastating natural disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes. And, and experts are saying that if this trend continues, there will be no wilderness in the next century. How could this be happening to the earth formed by the very word of God to live in harmony with itself and with man and with God? How could this happen? It's humans. I understand that for some of you, that argument might not be as compelling as it is for me. So fine, let's take the internet, for example, which was created to break down barriers where people could freely share thoughts and ideas and information, and it was supposed to unify us, and now it's the primary vehicle of division in this country and in this world. I can't remember a time I've logged off Twitter and not been angry. Actually, when I was preparing, putting the finishing touches to the sermon yesterday, I got into three Facebook arguments, and I won them all. <laughs> but Facebook, aren't those the worst? It's like, they're such a waste of time, but like, I just had this feeling that even though I don't know Paul, Paul Walters from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I like, he couldn't win this one, I had to win it. But isn't that a waste of time and energy? How is it that the internet, something that was supposed to bring us together, is tearing us apart? It's humans. We're messy. But you get it, don't you? You know exactly what that's about because you've seen it play out in your own life. This was supposed to be your dream job, or that person was supposed to be your dream spouse, and this was supposed to be your dream city, but, but humans. Whenever you put humans into the mix, things get complicated and things get messy, don't they? We want to be good and we want to be perfect and we set things up in such a way that they should be, but it's like we get in our own way, don't we? So it's starting to make sense now, isn't it? Paul is painting himself into a corner and it's because there's this question of sin that he can't answer. Paul, who was so confident in the very beginning of the book of Romans, now says this tongue twister that is difficult enough to read, let alone understand. What I want, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. I think Paul's beginning to recognize the hole in his argument because he has said that we are justified by faith and that we uphold the law and that we are free from the bonds of sin, but in his own life he has tried and failed and he tried and failed and he continues to sin. So from the looks of it, the problem isn't faith. The problem isn't the law, the problem is humans, which means that the problem is me. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul seems to recognize this and he throws, he's, it seems like he throws his hands in the air in exasperation and he says, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul calls himself wretched because he has tried and failed and tried and failed and he keeps missing the mark. 
But you know that feeling, don't you? I mean, just look at today's date, July 14th, 2018. How are your New Year's resolutions going? Okay, from that silence, I can tell not very well, huh? <laughs> Two weeks ago, the halfway mark of the year passed. So that means we're closer to January 2019 than we are to January 2018. And so maybe, maybe out there you're one of the 8% that actually keeps their New Year's resolutions. And if you are, you know, good job or whatever. But the rest of us, but the rest of us, we, we don't. We try and we fail and we don't. We, we miss our mark all the time. So I think we understand what Paul means when he says, what a wretched man am I. But then just as suddenly as Paul's argument goes off the rail, Paul seems to gain his composure and his confidence in verse 25. And he says, just as confident as ever, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wait a minute. We understand how Paul went from certainty to confusion, but how in the world did he so quickly go back to feeling and sounding confident again? I mean, we were all here when I read the text of emphasis. It was a mess, right? And I got to be honest for a second. Um, you know what the text of emphasis reminded me of? And God forgive, forgive me, but it reminded me of Caitlin Upton. Do you remember her? She was a contestant from South Carolina in the 2007 Miss Teen USA competition. And she's normally a very bright young woman, and she was only... 18 years old at the time, and she became overwhelmed and flustered during the question-answer portion of the competition. And she was asked this question, recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate US, the US on the map. Why do you think that is? And let me read verbatim her answer. She said, I personally believe that US Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and I believe that our education, such as in like South Africa and the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, our education over here in the US should help the US um, and or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Uh. I remember watching that and laughing and laughing until I realized that this was a teenager and I was a grown-up, and I've said dumber things with less pressure. But I have to say that I immediately thought of Caitlin when I read Paul's words in Romans 7. But you see, that's not a completely satisfying comparison because there's something different about Paul's words. Paul's tongue twister wasn't like Caitlin Up Upton's. Paul wasn't caught off guard or overwhelmed by his audience because he was writing a letter, which means that Paul had time to proofread and to edit his document, so he meant what he said here. Maybe Paul doesn't paint himself into a corner at all. This convoluted passage was intentional. Paul is trying to tell us something. And in order to understand what he's trying to understand, I think that it's important and it's best understood within the context of a story of a man who would fit Paul's definition of wretched, of someone who had tried and failed and tried and failed. And this story is found in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Now please read, please, please follow along as I read. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic, is called Bethesda, 
which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters because they believed that from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters, and the first one in the pool after each such disturbance would be cure of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been unable to walk for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And the man replied, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone always goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed, he had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, I see you are well again. Go and sin no more, or something worse may happen to you. That was such a lovely passage until that last part, wasn't it? This man had tried and failed and tried and failed to become well, but he found it impossible. And then one day he meets Jesus and is freed from his bondage. And after spending that day likely leaping for joy for the ability to walk, something he had been unable to do for four decades, he sees a man who healed him only to be told, go and sin no more. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus take him out of one impossible situation just to put him into another? Wouldn't it have been easier for this man just to stay broken by the pool? I think the easy answer would be to say that this man was in this, the condition that he was in because of his sin. But that argument doesn't hold water. It doesn't add up because if that were true, if our condition in life were truly a result of our righteousness, righteous men like Job and Hezekiah wouldn't have suffered like they did. And sinners like me would be far worse off. Why then would Jesus tell this man who had suffered for so long to do something impossible? Now, I don't know what you do when you don't understand things, but I find that it's always helpful to go back to the beginning. You see, we love to focus on go and sin no more, but completely miss the fact that at the very beginning of this passage, Jesus gave the man the key to a life of triumph over sin. Go and sin no more can only be understood within the context of the very first invitation that Jesus gave to his man, and it's right there in John 5, verse 8, and Jesus says, get up. Get up. We need to understand that Jesus is not commanding us to defeat sin. Sin has already been defeated. Jesus has already done that for us. Sin was defeated over 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning when all hope was lost and Christ crucified look at sin and death straight in the face and he got up and he became Christ the risen Savior. We are justified by faith because those who believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are invited to go and sin no more. And while Christ is working on doing the transformative work within us to make us who he wants us to be, we will fall. But our faith is that we will fall into the arms of the grace of Jesus Christ and into the grace of his invitation to get up. 
Now, there may be some among you who are concerned right now. We're talking a little bit too much about grace and not enough about change. We need to talk about change, JL. We need to talk about transformation, and I promise you that we're going to get there. Actually, Lincoln Alabaster is going to talk about it next week, and I heard a little snippet of his message, and it's the bomb, so trust me, you don't want to miss it. But I want to submit to you that there's a reason why Paul structured his masterpiece in this way and why he believes that we need to understand grace before we can understand transformation. Because otherwise, righteousness becomes about what we can do and not about what he has already done. And what he has done is released you from the chains of sin, but not only that, he has given you the key. And although sin can knock you down, it cannot keep you down. And through the grace and invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can get up. We have to understand that Jesus is not commanding us to defeat sin. Sin has already been defeated. Now, I don't know what get up means for you in your life. I know what it means in mine. And I pray that the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you, although I suspect that the Holy Spirit has already done that. But I do want you to understand that getting up doesn't always look like it did for the man at the pool of Bethesda, who by all accounts got up so easily. It certainly did it for Paul. Do you remember Paul's conversion? If not, I want to invite you to look it up when you have a chance. It's right there in Acts chapter 9. And you might be surprised about the first invitation that Jesus gives to Paul, and it's in verse 6, and it's get up. And Paul does, but he is weak, and he is blind, and he needs his friends to take him by the hand and to lead him to where Jesus wants him to be. And I don't know what get up means for you in your life, but I do know this. It doesn't matter how you get up. It matters that you get up. So church family, this is my prayer today. When you call yourself wretched, may you believe in the redemptive power of the one who calls you his own. And when you fall, which you will, may you accept the invitation of our risen Savior and may you look sin and death squarely in the face and get up. Amen.